Well, it was nearly 2,025 years ago that the Lord Jesus Christ was born. He was born to the Virgin Mary, and she became pregnant by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And for 33 years, the Lord Jesus Christ lived upon the earth in what is termed the days of his flesh. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And he was crucified. And for three days, he lay unconscious in the grave and then rose again. God raised him from the grave and granted him immortality because he had done nothing worthy and deserving of death. And then he ascended to heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God, awaiting the day when God will send him back down to the earth to raise the dead and give the faithful immortality and establish God's kingdom upon this earth. Well, our consideration this evening is about those 33 years that Jesus was upon the earth, the days of his flesh. And we ask ourselves the question, did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? We believe, and we're going to show in a minute, that the Bible is very clear on this, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. It says that. But perhaps some of the challenges, what does that exactly mean? What did the apostles mean when they said Jesus Christ came in the flesh? That's what we need to explore this evening in order to understand this subject. Well, 1st of John chapter 4 is the passage where we actually find uh, our title. Is, that's where it's taken from. Now, 1st John is a letter that the Apostle John wrote. It's at the end of the New Testament. And we have to understand that the Apostles, like John and like the Apostle Paul and others, were very concerned about a departure from the faith. In fact, the prophecies in the New Testament are very clear that there was to be a large-scale departure from the faith, and it was already beginning in the time of the first century. And with that in mind, the Apostle John writes this, verse 1 of 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And it was happening in their day, it's happening in our day, and we need to make sure that we're going back to the Bible. Don't just believe somebody when they say the Bible teaches this or that. We, we need to go back to the scriptures. We need to study our Bibles. We need to compare scripture with scripture in order to come to the conclusions and see whether the things we've heard are actually true or not. So this evening, we're going to be opening our Bibles. We're going to be going through a large number of, of passages. I ask you, Write them down, go back through them afterwards, take a look at them, look at the context, look at the words that are used, and see if the things that we are saying are true. Because, of course, we believe, we believe that they are, and, and we believe this is a serious subject. Look at the next words in 1 John 4, verse 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now, those are very serious words. We've got to understand what it means that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. To deny he came in the flesh is, as John says, the spirit of Antichrist is to set us against Christ. And again, we need to think about what did this mean to the apostles? What did this mean to John when he wrote these things? Now, it has been said that uh, this was written in the context of Gnosticism, that there were Gnostic beliefs around in, at the time when John was writing, and they believed that Jesus was a spirit being that just appeared to be flesh and blood, but wasn't actually flesh and blood. But we can't limit our scope to just what was there in the first century and just to the belief of the Gnostics. Any belief that is contrary to what the apostles believed Jesus' nature to be, that he came in the flesh, 
would be a denial that he came in the flesh. We need to get back to what does the Bible teach us? What do the apostles teach us concerning the nature of Jesus Christ? And again, as we go into the second letter of John, we find the exact same thing. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So we don't want to be deceived. We want to understand what it means that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And we do that by going back to the scriptures and looking at what they have to say. Now, we're looking at a topic this evening, which is about the nature of Jesus Christ. We're also going to look in a minute, we have to bring in the, to this the nature of God as well. When we talk about subjects like this, sometimes people that have had questions about the nature of God and the nature of Jesus Christ are told that, well, we can't truly understand these things. God is so high, he's so lofty, that, that we that are, that are, that are human, we, we can't wrap our minds fully around these things and comprehend them. We just need to accept them. Now, what we want to show this evening is actually the Bible is very clear. It's actually very logical. It's very easy to understand these things. Sometimes it's actually the baggage that we bring with us to the Bible, other ideas that we think the Bible teaches this or that, and we try and we read the Bible with that lens and try and fit everything into that lens, that that's where we can sometimes have the problem. So this evening we want to look at just what does the Bible have to say and, and take it for what it says at face value. And again, this is a, this is a serious topic because... It's eternal life in John's gospel, 17, chapter 17, verse 3. This is life eternal or eternal life to know God and to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to know who they are. We want to know who God is. We want to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what that plan of salvation was. We want to know what the gospel message is and, and how Christ came to provide salvation and redemption from sin and death. Now, as we go on, I just want to begin by just showing you what some of the ideas are out there, uh, what mainstream Christianity actually believes on this subject. Now, I'm not saying every Christian denomination believes this, but it seems in my, my little Google search of just asking, uh, typing in a few questions, that this is, this is sort of a, a mainstream idea that's out there about the, the nature of of Jesus Christ. And this particular um, website I found, if you just type into Google, just type in, did could Jesus sin? That's what I typed in, could Jesus sin? And this is, all kinds of articles will come up, and this is one of the first ones that will come, and I thought it just so nicely illustrates for us the view of mainstream Christianity. And we're going to actually take some of the things that are here and we're going to we're going to look at what the scriptures say. Does the scriptures support these things or not? Now, you'll see on the in this article on the, on the left side of your screen where I've got the screenshot of the of the article. This is taken from this is an article you'll find on blueletterbible.org. And uh, I put the link there at the bottom of the screen. If you're if you're wanting to get there, uh, you can take a picture of, of, of this slide, I suppose. And you, this is how you could get there. Um, but basically what he says is this. While all Christians agree that Jesus did not sin, there is a view that he was incapable of sinning while here upon earth. And this is known as his impeccability. So this is a, a mainstream view of Christianity, that Jesus was impeccable. He was incapable of sinning. Okay. And then what this article does is he goes down and he, and he starts outlining the different reasons. And I've just put a few quotes on the screen that I think will summarize this nicely for us and give us an idea of, of the views that are out there on the nature of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we need to understand is he's approaching this subject through the, through the view and through the understanding that God and Jesus are the same. They are, they are a trinity and Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh, okay? And that's where this premise begins. That's the foundation. And now he's trying to take everything that we read about God and God's nature and the nature of Jesus Christ and trying to make them 
compatible one with the other? How do we reconcile these things together? That Jesus was a man, but also God. So this is what he says. While Jesus had a human nature, he also had a divine nature. Since he was the eternal God who became human, it was impossible for the divine nature to sin. The human nature could not act apart from the divine nature. Therefore, he could not sin. Since God cannot be tempted to sin, Jesus could not sin. So you can, you can see how the logic flows, that if Jesus is God and, and, and God can't sin, and, and that's true, God can't sin, then therefore Jesus couldn't sin. He continues, since Jesus Christ is God and God cannot sin in any way, then Jesus could not have sinned in any way. The nature of God does not change. And we're going to examine that point in a, in a moment. Did the nature of Jesus actually change? Okay, and if and he continues, if Jesus could have sinned while on the earth, then it would be possible for him to sin in heaven. So he's concluded the nature of Jesus doesn't change. It's the nature of God. If Jesus was capable of sinning on earth, he was capable of then sinning in heaven. Well, the article continues, and, and he talks about the temptations of Jesus. And we know that Jesus faced temptation. But this is what he says. The nature of Christ's temptations came from without not from within. So any temptation Jesus had, you know, make, make, turn this, these stones into bread, or Jesus, we want, we're going to make you king, or come down from the cross. These were, these were temptations, but only external. There was nothing internal happening with the Lord. He was not, not enticed in the least by these things is the idea that he's that this article is saying the nature of jesus christ or of christ's temptations came from without not from within for sin to occur there must be an inward response to an, the outward temptation since jesus did not possess a sin nature therefore there was no possibility of him to respond to the temptation okay so he's concluded that jesus did, did, did had the same nature as god he did not possess human nature or sin nature okay and then he says the reason why jesus was tempted was not to see whether or not he could sin the purpose was to show he could not sin and we're going to examine that part too why was jesus tempted and actually we're going to find that neither of those reasons on the screen are the true reason why jesus was in fact tempted and what was the nature of that temptation all right, so that gives you an idea of where mainstream Christianity is is, is on these on, on the idea of Jesus. And yet they, they do claim that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Now, in order to, to properly understand this, I need to take you quickly through um, the difference between immortality, God's nature, the divine nature, and mortality, which we have. And then we'll ask ourselves, where does Jesus fit? with these okay so immortality we have a reading from first corinthians chapter 15 at the end there and and it really drew a contrast for us between immortality immortality and mortality and immortal the immortal body is known as the spiritual body and the mortal body the natural body or flesh and blood okay now there's some verses i put up on the screen let's just read those first of all we learn in 1 Timothy 6.16 6, that God, it says, only hath immortality. He dwells in the light which no man can approach unto. Now, when, when it says that God only has immortality, that means it's underived. He is underived. He didn't receive immortality from anybody. But as we go through the scriptures, we find that the angels, they have immortality. We find that the Lord Jesus Christ, he's in heaven now. He, he is immortal. We hope to be made immortal one day. So this, we understand 1 Timothy 6, 16 to mean God is the only one that didn't have immortality bestowed upon him. He had it uh, underived, we could say. Now, James 1, 13 says God cannot be tempted with evil. So God doesn't face temptation. It makes sense that the immortal body is not tempted. 1 John 1, 5 says God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Now, darkness and light are used in scripture as darkness for sin, light for righteousness. There is no sin with God at all. 
In fact, mortal man cannot approach into the presence of God, we're told elsewhere. And the very idea of immortality is brought out in Luke 20, which is the idea we cannot die anymore. So to summarize what we put on the screen is there, uh, the immortal body, the spiritual body, does not face temptation, does not sin and cannot sin, does not die and cannot die, is incorruptible, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, and it doesn't have the frailties of the flesh. Like there's, it doesn't... The one who has immortality is not suffering, does not get tired, does not grow old. And I suppose there's many more things that we could say about immortality, but that's a, that's a brief summary of these things. Now, we put that in contrast with mortality. Mortality is described in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50 as flesh and blood. Mortality is the exact opposite. Death is a certainty. We know that we're dying creatures. This is what we deal with in our world today. And if anything, I suppose that the, the, the pandemic of the past year has really shone a spotlight on mortality and, and brought it out. If you look further down the screen there, if you, you'll see where I say corruptible. We have a corruptible body, a dishonorable body, weak body. Those are the words that 1 Corinthians 15 describes. We, we experience pain and sorrow and suffering. Paul describes it groaning. He groans in this mortality. He's longing to be clothed with immortality. He looked forward to the future. We all experience these things. That's part of being mortal, flesh and blood. But as mortal, we also experience lusts. We have a bias towards sin, Scripture says. We're not inherently good. We face temptation. And we do sin. Look at those verses on the side of the screen. We'll, we'll turn to James in, in a bit, but it just says, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. So we have lusts. We're enticed by evil. Paul in Romans chapter 7, and you could read the whole section for yourself another time. A, a beautiful section. Well, maybe not beautiful, but it's a, it's a, it is a good section, we could say, where the Apostle Paul describes the struggle, the internal struggle that's going on in his mind between sin and how he wants to do what's always good in the sight of God, but he finds that he's slipping up, he's, he sins. And he describes this as a war that's going on in his mind in this passage. And he relates this struggle to, there in Romans 7.24, the body of this death, mortality. In mortality, we have a struggle. We have a war going on in the mind. And Paul lamented about the fact that while he sought to do good, he found himself doing evil. That's what we mean by the bias towards sin. But Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That was the conclusion that we come to when the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene, that there was no human being that had ever been born, that had ever lived a perfect life. Sin was so strong that it, it, it concluded that all have sinned. There were no exceptions. The only exception, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see how that was as we proceed. Now put these things together. So based upon you can based upon the article that we read at the beginning, we put mortality down the one side and immortality in contrast to it down the other. And I've tried to put some X's where I think it best fits where what we read and how they would describe it, that Jesus was both man and God. He had a natural body, but also a spiritual body. He didn't have human lusts. He wasn't enticed by sin. He didn't have a bias towards sin. He didn't have sin nature, so he didn't think about sin. The thought of sin never arose in his mind. Did he face temptation from within? Well, they said, no, he can't be tempted. And therefore, not internally, they say, and he couldn't sin. But then on the same hand, they also would say, well, of course, Jesus died upon the cross and he was corruptible. He experienced pain and, and suffering and Loneliness, anxiety, and stress, and fear, and sadness. He experienced all these things, which are part of, part of mortality. 
Now, that's the view that we saw at the beginning in the article, the view of mainstream Christianity. And I want to say we are not going to support that this evening, because when we go to the Bible, we don't believe that the Bible actually does support this view. In fact, this is what we think and what I hope to show the Bible actually supports. That Jesus was, in fact, flesh and blood, just as us. He had lusts and he was enticed by sin. He had sin nature and had that same bias towards sin as we do. He faced temptation from within. Though he didn't sin, he never gave in to that temptation. And of course, we would agree that Jesus did die. He was corruptible and weak. So this is what we hope to show as we continue on in our study this evening. To look at a few passages throughout the New Testament not just taken from one of one place in the New Testament, from a number of letters that were written, that we'll see that this is a consistent message through the New Testament about the nature of the Lord Jesus. Now, the first thing I want to show you is that Jesus is described in Scripture clearly as a man. When Peter the Apostle was preaching in Acts 2, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you. He describes him as a man. 1 Timothy 2 and 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Notice again, the man, Jesus Christ Jesus. But also notice in this passage that there are clearly three parties that are, that are being described here. There's God, one God. There's man, mankind. Men, he describes them. And in the middle is the mediator. The third party is the Lord Jesus Christ. One mediator between God and men. Clearly, three different parties which are involved in this verse. That's how the Apostle Paul viewed the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the man, Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 15 is another passage. Paul here is describing the difference between Adam and Jesus. He says, if through the offense of one, many be dead, and that one is talking about the offense of Adam, Adam's sin in the garden. He says, much more, the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. In this passage, again, Jesus is described as one, one man. And he's put in contrast to the one man, Adam, the first man. But in the same way, he's actually a descendant of Adam. And you can prove that through looking at the lineage of Mary in Luke chapter 3. It traces Jesus' genealogy right back through Mary, back to Adam. He was of the line of Adam's descendants. And like Adam, flesh and blood, or like all of Adam's and Eve's children. He shared in the same nature. So Jesus is described as a man. Now, the next thing we want to look at is the temptations of Jesus. Now, everyone would agree that Jesus faced temptation. Because the scriptures clearly say. Now, I want you actually, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Because Hebrews, we're going to come back to the, this, this passage uh, a couple of times in the upcoming slides. So it's good that we open our Bible and and do look at these passages there. So if you have your Bible, look at Hebrews chapter 2. You see what it says. Hebrews 2, 18, the very end, the very last verse. Talking about Jesus. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them or come to the aid of them. Is that what that means? Of them that are tempted. Notice here that it says Jesus was tempted. He suffered. Part of the sufferings of Jesus were the temptations that he faced. But the fact is, because he went through and faced temptation, he's able to understand the temptations we go through. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now you flip over the page to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll pick it up a verse earlier from what we have on the screen. We'll pick it up from verse 14 and see the same thing. 
says Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So we're talking about Jesus Christ. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So it clearly again says that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, but he didn't give in to those temptations. He didn't sin. Now, just for clarity, when it says that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, it doesn't mean that Jesus was tempted by every single different kind of temptation that would, that's out there. Like anything that you possibly could think of that you could be tempted with, it doesn't mean Jesus was tempted by every single thing. But it means that he faced temptation like we do. And some of his temptations that he had were unique to him because he had the Holy Spirit power without reservation. And, and, and we don't. So you can see how some something that might be tempting for him what might not be a temptation for us. But, but what this verse is saying is he faced temptation. And because he faced temptation, he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He can sympathize with us, with our struggles and with our weaknesses. In fact, that word is used down in chapter 5, a few verses later. He's a high priest that can sympathize with us. Now, if Jesus' temptations were only external, that every temptation was just somebody offering him something and saying, Jesus, you should do this or do that. But there was nothing enticing about it to the Lord. He didn't have any, any, any desire towards those things. Could he really truly be said to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities? Could he truly understand what we go through? We'd suggest not. But even further to this, we have actually a description a, a few chapters later. I want you to go in your Bible now to James chapter 1, which is James is, is found right after Hebrews. So just flip over the page to James chapter 1, because James will now describe what is temptation. And this is a beautiful passage because it tells us exactly what temptation is. It tells us temptation comes from within. Look at what it says. Now, James 1, we're going to pick it up at verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. All right, there's our, there's our verse for God. God is immortal, cannot be tempted with evil. But look at this. In contrast, we have man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it, bringeth, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, I want you to look at this process. First of all, notice what... What James says in verse 14, every man is tempted. We just saw the verses that says that Jesus was a man, the man, Christ Jesus. This applies to Jesus as well. He faced temptation. How did he face temptation? Well, James describes how we face temptations. We face temptation when we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. That's critical. It's not really a temptation for us if we don't actually have a desire for the thing that's being offered to us. I'll demonstrate that with an example in just a minute. But notice that now that the, temp now the temptation has come, we now have a choice to make. We have a choice. Do we give in to that temptation or not? And this is where Jesus never gave in to that temptation. He said no every time. But if we give in to the temptation, it, well, it results in sin. We sin. And we know that sin, we die. Death is a consequence of sin. It's right that we are dying creatures because we do sin. Now take a look at this example. I'm going to give you a silly example of this. And I, and I call it a silly example because... It really is an example where it's not really talking about temptation. That's a sin per se. It's not, not a sin, but, 
but it will demonstrate the point. And I think you'll get it. Okay, now I'm putting up on the screen a picture of, a, of something that I really like. This is a box of Timbits. Now, if you're not from Canada, you may not know what Timbits are. Timbits are little donuts, you could say. All right, and, and they're from Tim Hortons in Canada. So now, again, eating a Timbit is not a sin. Let's be clear about that. But take the principle I'm about to explain and extend it to something which is a sin. All right. Now, from time to time, when, when we used to go into work, I haven't been into work for almost a year now, but uh, when we used to go into the office, um, occasionally someone would bring a pick up a box of Timbits and they would be there on the table when I came into the office and they would be there sitting in front of me, staring me in the face, wanting me to have a Timbit. And because I love Timbits so much, I find it very hard to resist having a Timbit. You could say that I was, and I'm enticed by the Timbit. And it would be very hard for me to actually say, no, I'm not going to have a Timbit. I, I would most likely be the first to dip my hand in and pick up a Timbit, maybe one, and then maybe uh, if there was still some there, two, three, or four more. And uh, because I just love the taste of Timbits. And, um, but so for me, the Timbit box sitting there when I get come into work is a temptation because I'm enticed by it. I love the taste of Timbits. But if, for instance, a colleague of mine were to come in and look at that box of Timbits, well, he eats really healthy. And he's never shown any desire towards eating a Timbit. He never takes one. He doesn't want it. You ask, do you want a Timbit? No. He's not enticed by it. He doesn't, he doesn't want it. Similarly, there might be somebody else that doesn't even like the taste of the Timbit or doesn't like the flavor of the Timbit that's, being, that's there in the box. And, and, and for them, it's not even enticing to them to have it. It's not a temptation. Whereas for me, I look at that box and I see it's a temptation. The point is this. A temptation can only be te a temptation if you're actually enticed by the thing. You can't really be tempted by something if you're not interested at all. It's like if, if somebody, for instance, offered held up their hand offering me drugs. Well, I've never taken drugs in my life. I, I would look at it and say, I'm not interested in this. I, I would hope that would be the same for many of you, that you would not be, you would understand, you wouldn't be interested in it. It's not a temptation to you. But somebody that has taken drugs and is being offered them, well, that could be a big temptation for them. So what we're trying to demonstrate here is that for the Lord Jesus Christ to be tempted to feel the infirmities that we go through, the struggles, and understand the struggle we go through, he actually had to be enticed and have the lusts that we do. Now, another point that was brought up was, did Jesus' nature change? Remember our article said Jesus' nature did not change. If he could sin on earth, he could sin in heaven. Well, look at this. I mean, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, he says, Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, know we him no more. Notice the contrast. Paul says we knew Jesus after the flesh, when he was here, when he was flesh and blood. But he's no longer flesh and blood. We don't know him that way anymore. He's been given immortality. Now, flip back in your Bibles to Hebrews 5. So back the page from James, if you're still in James, and go back to Hebrews 5. And look what it says here. Paul, again, contrasts Jesus, the days of his flesh, is 33 years upon earth, when he was flesh and blood, is going to be contrasted in verse 9 with immortality. It says there in Hebrews 5, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayer and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that he was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So notice that there's a contrast between the days of his flesh in verse 7, and then verse 9, Jesus was made perfect. 
And because he was made perfect, he became immortal. He became the author of eternal salvation. There's obviously a change that's taken place. Now, in the days of his flesh, notice what it says. He offered up prayers and supplications to God with strong crying and tears. You could think of the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, offering up strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him. So here's Christ. He's praying to his Father. He's praying to God in heaven to save him from death. Notice here. Jesus himself needed saving from death. Jesus benefited from his own sacrifice, is the point. He was the first beneficiary of his sacrifice. He needed saving out of death. Verse 8 says he had to learn obedience and he suffered. Now, back to Hebrews 2. Let's go back a couple of pages to Hebrews 2 and take a look at what it says, that Jesus, in fact, shared our nature. Remember, the, the opening quotation said, Jesus did not have a sin nature. But these passages tell us otherwise. Hebrews 2, verse 9 says this. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Notice here, he was made a little lower than the angels. The angels are immortal. But Jesus, when he came, was not immortal. He was flesh and blood. He died. He suffered. But now, he's been crowned with glory and honor. Perhaps it's more clear a few verses later in verses 14 to 16. Verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now notice there in verse 16, that last verse, it says the same thing as verse 9. He didn't share the nature of angels. He didn't have immortality. He had the nature of Abraham and of Abraham's descendants. Now Abraham was flesh and blood. He had sin nature, our condemned nature that we have. So did Christ. Look at verse 14 again. Look at the emphasis that the writer here to the Hebrews is placing on this fact that Jesus shared our nature. He partook of flesh and blood. It says he also himself likewise took part of the same. It didn't need to be written like that. It could have just been written he took part of the same. He also took part of the same. He also himself took part of the same. But no, it's emphasized four times for us. He also himself likewise took part of the same. He's driving it home that Jesus shared the same nature as us, flesh and blood. But there is a reason why this is so important. You, know, you might ask, well, is it really that important to understand that Jesus Christ shared our nature? What's the difference between understanding that he had a sin nature or didn't have a sin nature? Well, look what it says. Jesus had to share our nature so that he could destroy sin. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver us. Deliver us who are, have been subject to bondage. That's how the scripture describes it. We're subject to bondage. We're slaves to sin. We needed to be saving from the taskmaster over us. And that's what Jesus came and did. Now look at this. Galatians 4 verses 3 to 5 says the same thing. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. 
there, that, that word bondage again, we're, we're in bondage to sin and death. Verse four, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. For what purpose? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So this is telling us that God took the initiative when there was no human being that had ever lived that had been able to overcome sin. God took the initiative and sent us his son. But his son was made of a woman, born of Mary. He was made under the law. Now, this could be viewed in two ways. I think both are appropriate. He was under the law of Moses. He was a Jew. But he was also under the greater law that all mankind are under. The law of sin and death. That's the law of our nature. The law that we've been talking about all the way through. That we have lust. We have enticements. We do face temptation. We sin. We die. Jesus was under the same law. For what purpose? Again, it was to redeem us. His work required that he share our nature. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is another great passage. For he that hath made him, that's God has made Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, again, this verse might seem contradictory. You might wonder what's going on here. Let's read it again. God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. Who knew no sin? Yes, Jesus did not sin. So what does it mean that God made him to be sin for us? It means Jesus shared our nature, which is sometimes referred to as sin nature. Now, I want to be clear. The nature that we have, flesh and blood, is called a sin nature here, not because it is a sin, but because it results in sin. In every case, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, that nature resulted in sin. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But nowhere in Scripture will you find support for the idea that we need atonement or forgiveness for the nature that we are born with. It needs to be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, our opening reading, made that very clear. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But that nature does not need to be forgiven. It's not a crime. If it needed to be forgiven, then Jesus would have had sin. But he didn't. He shared our nature, our condemned nature, but was without sin. So we wanted to be clear about that. But this passage is, again, telling us Jesus shared our condemned nature, but he never gave in to the temptations. Romans 8 verse 3 is another passage. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. So the law of Moses, it's talking about the law of Moses could not save a person. The law of Moses couldn't, didn't produce somebody that was perfect. But God took the initiative. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God sends his son. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the same nature that we have. Why? Why did Jesus need to share that nature? Because Jesus had a mission. He was to condemn sin. Condemn means to judge it. To judge it unworthy of living. He condemned sin. Where? In his flesh. He faced the lust. He faced temptation. He never gave in to them. In that way, when he never gave in to any of the temptations, he was condemning sin. And perhaps the greatest example of all is when he went to the cross. He never gave in to the temptation to escape the cross or come down from the cross. He went through with it and made an open public example upon the cross that the flesh is deserving of death. The flesh that results in sin, that leads to sin, is deserving of death. 
and we need to put it to death. That's what Christ came and showed us when he went to the cross. He couldn't do that if he didn't actually share our nature and struggle with the same things we struggle with. Now, this is an example for us. We'll see this. What Jesus did was an example for us. Romans 6, verses 3 to 6, the whole chapter is about baptism and how we identify ourselves with Christ. But look at these verses here. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, baptism is the process by which a person, a man or a woman, goes down into water and rises up again. And in that way, what they're actually doing is they're acting out what Christ did literally. That he went down into the grave, he died, he was buried in the tomb, and he rose up to life again. That's what a person does. Baptism is the way that we're identifying ourselves with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not asked to literally die and be crucified in the way that the Lord Jesus was. But we are asked to follow his example. So it says, verse 4 of Romans 6, Therefore we're buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Christ rose up from the grave. He was granted immortality, a new life. That's what we're hoping to have in the future. But we need to live as if we have it now, as new creatures in God's sight. Knowing this, says verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. The man, our natural man, the one that wants to sin, the, the, the one that has desires towards simple, simple things. And he, said, he says we, we need to literally think about it as if we put that person to death. And we are a new creature, no longer serving sin, but serving God. Look what he says in verse 6 again. He says that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. This is what Christ did literally. He was crucified and through that process, the body of sin was destroyed. We're asked to do that figuratively. To have this disposition of mind that we've died to sin and we're now living as new creatures unto God. And again, this principle is brought out. Galatians 5 they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. When lusts arise, we need to crucify them, cut them off. Romans 13, 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Now back to our reading that we started with, 1 Corinthians 15. Christ won a victory over sin and death, a real victory. Because he shared our nature. He shared our struggles. And he was victorious over them. We can share in the results of that victory. We can't achieve it ourselves. But God has said, if you identify yourselves with Christ through the process of baptism. And live out those principles as best you can in your life. You can, be, you can receive the victory with the Lord. Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one remaining question. How is it that Jesus actually overcame when no other human being had was able to do it? And this is where we bring in the idea that Jesus Christ was not just the son of man, not just the son of Mary, but he was the son of God as well. And that doesn't mean that he shared God's nature, but he had a very special relationship with his father. Psalm 80 verse 17 prophesies of Christ. Let thy hand, God's hand, be upon the man of thy right hand, Jesus, upon the son of man, whom thou made as strong for thyself. Jesus was the one that God made strong for himself. Isaiah 11 verse 3 says that he shall be, Jesus shall be, or God shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. 
Jesus had a quick understanding to be able to pick up spiritual principles. You know, when you're somebody's son, you, you share the characteristics of your, of your parents. Jesus shared certain characteristics with his father, a love for righteousness, a hatred for wickedness. He shared a love for the scriptures and, and was able to pick them up much more quickly than we are able to. We could say more about this, but I think that's sufficient to, to be able to, to say that Christ benefited from his relationship with his father. And it gave him the strength to be able to overcome those temptations. But that didn't mean that the temptations were any less real than what we face. He was flesh and blood. And so what we've hoped to show you this evening, that this is what the scripture presents. This is the picture. Jesus was a man with a natural body who had lusts as we do. Who had a bias, sin nature and a bias towards sin like we do. He faced temptations, real temptations from within. But he never gave in to those temptations. He never sinned. He died upon the cross. He was corruptible. He suffered pain. He had sufferings, loneliness, anxiety, stress, and fear. But he overcame. And the grave could not hold him, it says. God raised him up from the grave and granted him immortality. And it's our hope that one day we can share immortality with him. Now, one question remains. How do you reconcile this with the idea that God and Jesus are one and the same? That Jesus was God incarnate, come down into the flesh. The idea of the Trinity. And we would say that if you look at what we've looked at tonight and look at it honestly and look at what the scriptures are saying, you actually cannot support through scripture the idea of the Trinity, that Jesus and God are in fact the same. They're clearly different. Jesus had a very different nature from God when he was down here, when he was on the earth for those 33 years. But now he's ascended him and given immortality and he sits at the right hand of God and you will come back to the earth to establish that kingdom and so we need to search the scriptures carefully many deceivers are gone into the world deceivers who say Jesus Christ did come in the flesh and yet they don't teach what the scriptures teach about the nature of Jesus Christ this is a deceiver and an antichrist says the Apostle John. So search the scriptures. Compare scripture with scripture. See if these things we've been speaking about this evening are true. Thank you. Mm -hmm.